This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. I work with clients to get to root cause healing, and that is often gut healing with a meat based elimination diet. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Robert Sykes. Robert Sykes is also known as Keto Savage. He has one of the most successful keto podcasts that has been airing for a while now. In our discussion today, Robert just talks about how you can be your best and perform your best and look your best on a ketogenic diet. He talks about how you can actually use fat as a lever during bodybuilding performances when most people normally pull the high protein and low fat lever. Make sure to check out this full episode. It's a lot of good information. We also talk about the needs of carbohydrates, the risks of eating just lean proteins, and many other topics that you will find valuable. He shares his approach to healing your metabolism as well as losing weight. All right, let's get right into the episode. Hey, Robert, it's so good to see you.、Um, thanks for joining me today. If you can just introduce yourself to the people that are listening and watching. Yeah, well, thanks for taking the time to have me on here. I'm, I'm really excited to be chatting with you.、Uh, so, I'm Robert Sykes, Keto Savage, and I've been doing bodybuilding for about 12, 13 years now. And I've been ketogenic about six or seven of those years.、Um, I earned my pro card back in 2017 with a ketogenic approach.、Uh, the ketogenic diet has been a godsend for me in helping me recover from、uh, eating disorders and just improving my overall health. My wife, Crystal, is Also, doing the ketogenic diets, and I've since pretty much committed my life to educating and informing others how to implement it into their lives、uh, from a performance and optimization standpoint. So, I'm, I'm just passionate about the lifestyle, passionate about the nutrition, and excited to be talking with you about it. Obviously, you've been in the nutrition space for a while now, and you've helped people even coach them with、um, whether it's like body optimization or weight loss. And we have a mutual friend that you also coach. And so, I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit about. You know, there's lots of stuff on the internet.、Um, there are trends and then there's ebbs and flows. And,、um, you know, you've been in it for such a long time. When keto first came out, it was more for a therapy type of diet. And now it's become a lot more mainstream where people are using a lot more, I guess, of the 
protein macro. Uh, and I know on your, um, your podcast, we talked about how fat is our favorite kind of macro, but what are your thoughts on what's popular now versus like what's healing versus weight loss? Like just your thoughts in that whole sector and what to do long-term. Try to get me in trouble here, Judy. <laughs> um, so that's a good question. There's, there's a lot of trends, like you say, you know, keto blew up in popularity, probably like in 2017, 18 is when the hype really peaked. And with that, you've got so many products coming out. You've got so many people trying to make their namesake with keto. Um, and everybody's bio-individual, like we all say. So it's good that, you know, not one set of macros is going to be perfect for everyone. But with that, I've seen this massive shift towards people blurring the lines as to what a ketogenic diet is and should be. And unfortunately, I feel like that's kind of bastardized, you know, the ketogenic diet in its entirety. Um, so I've been in the space before it was popular. I'll be in the space long after it's popular. And there's so many other people that have been and will be as well. Um, but it is interesting to see the, the, the ebb and flow of, of what people and what mainstream is doing. Um, as far as different macronutrient splits and distributions, um, protein has definitely been given the halo right now. Everybody's talking about protein. And I feel like it's just honestly a pendulum shift because for a while there, they were all afraid of protein. Everybody was concerned that too much protein would cause gluconeogenesis. So they were avoiding it like the plague. And that wasn't good. And now you've got people just consuming it in a massive surplus, which also isn't optimal. Um, so trying to figure out where that, where that equilibrium point becomes, uh, you know, sustainable is, is key for me. I've always, uh, I've always included quite a bit of protein, especially with my training, but my fat ratio has always been the majority of where my calories are coming from. And I feel and perform better at that from a, from a ketogenic standpoint, like it stands to the reason that you would want to make sure the majority of your calories are coming from a dietary fat source. And you can get away with, you know, more protein grams and fat grams and still have a higher percentage of your calories coming from fat and still satisfying that, uh, you know, general definition of the term. So I think not foregoing the fat in favor of just too much protein is, is super important. What's your percentage, I guess, in terms of total calories that on average um, that you eat fat um, compared to protein? So it all just depends on what my goal is. So when I'm in a building phase, I'm going to have more protein. When I'm in a cutting phase, I'm going to start out with higher fat and then increase protein until I get to right about a one-to-one -one or until my body starts to showcase some adverse effects from the increasing protein. And at that point, I'll start reducing protein. Um, all the while, my body uh, composition is changing. My calories are dropping. In the very tail end of a competition prep, when my body fat is incredibly low, like sub 5%, I find it to be beneficial to have a much higher fat ratio at that point because that just stabilizes my hormones, keeps my testosterone at a high, high healthy baseline, um, which is very muscle sparing. A lot of people are under the impression that when you're in a calorie deficit, like in a competition prep, you have a ton of protein coming in to be uh, to preserve the muscle mass that you have. But I found that if you have the higher fat ratio and your hormones are stable and you're training and doing everything like that uh, properly, then that's more muscle sparing than simply having a high protein intake. That's interesting. So then at that point, do you still keep the protein at the levels you had to build the muscle or? No. So I'll actually dip below. I'll dip below what I would recommend anybody consume protein at as a sustainable level. I mean, when I'm in a, like the last couple of weeks of a competition prep, I'll, I'll be sub 100 grams of protein. Okay. Um, I'll have a couple of refeed days throughout, you know, the course of several weeks. Um, but I'll be sub 100 grams of protein for me in my body stats tail end of a competition prep. Now in a building phase, I'm probably consuming about 200 to 250 grams of protein a day. So it changes quite a bit based off of what my goals are. Um, but for in the bodybuilding space, people have always just touted protein, protein, protein. Um, and they're, they're very 
they're very uh, hesitant to to go down on that intake, but I found more benefits from a muscle preservation standpoint and a performance standpoint by actually having a higher fat ratio relative to protein in the context of the lower calories. That's interesting. So when you are eating like the 200, 250 grams of protein, where's your fat at typically? Probably like 250, 300. So still okay. higher than the protein, but quite, oh, wow. quite a bit okay. of calories overall. So then is that about like 60% fat in terms of total calories? Yeah. So if you do a one-to-one ratio, so like if you're, if you have a one gram of fat for every one gram of protein, that's going to put you at about a 68% of your calories coming from dietary fat. And from a maintenance standpoint or a building standpoint, I'll typically hover right around 68, 69, 70, 72% somewhere in there. Um, Whenever I'm trying to do a lot of cognitive work, or if I'm in a caloric deficit, I'll tend to to bump that up north of 75%. I found for myself too, this diet is just more sustainable when I'm at 75% fat in terms of total calories. And then I just, um, I typically do one gram of protein per one pound of ideal body weight, but I have to have my fat at 75 or 70 ish at lowest, um, Mm -hmm. to feel like I, this, um, meat-based diet can be sustainable in terms of women. Do you see sort of the, cause I know you've coached a lot of women in that space too. Do you find the same type of needs like right before competition, do they also increase the fat and then lower the protein? Yes, but I'll go even higher on the fat with females. I find that that females tend to respond much better to a higher fat ratio uh, in that you know context of a caloric deficit than males. And also when I'm, when I'm increasing protein, like mid, mid competition prep, I'll go a little bit higher on the protein ratio with males than females. Um, and that's not because of their lean mass. It's because I think more so hormonal fluctuations in, in males versus females, but the males tend to respond a little bit better to, um, you know, more protein about mid prep. And then I don't go as high as the fat ratio with them. I still go pretty high. I still North of 70% there at the tail end, but females all often go as high as 80, 82% of their calories coming from fat. Well, that's so interesting. I've never heard that for um, a competition. You know, you hear that like everyone's eating like chicken breasts and, you know, egg whites right before a competition. And I don't know much about that space. So it's really fascinating to hear that from you. And it makes sense from a hormonal perspective, as you're saying, and even just sustainability, right? I'm sure if you're just eating lean proteins and not much vegetables, you'd be very, very ravenous. That's sustainable at all. It's, it's, I mean, most, most competitors that fall that traditional way, like they, they walk around like zombies and they're eating like rice cakes backstage, you know, I'm eating keto bricks and ribeyes and things like that. So much, much better from a, from a sustainability standpoint, for sure. So what if you're just a average person that's not doing competition, but just wants to maintain, maybe they have a little bit of weight to lose, but nothing like a lot to lose, but just maintenance, uh, where, where do you typically see the macros kind of fall for somebody that's eating a meat-based diet? Yeah. So like a a one-to-one ratio is a pretty good sweet spot. Like if people are wanting to just simply maintain or, you know, dial things in a little bit, if they start at a one-to-one ratio, that's a pretty good uh, starting point. If they're already fat adapted, if they're not yet fat adapted, I find a lot of benefit in starting out at the, I'll start as high as 80% of their calories coming from fat and then start titrating protein up and fat down from there, just so we can jumpstart their fat adaptation and then adjust, you know, based off of what their body's telling me. Um, but what I see with, I mean, the, the general rules that applies from a competitor standpoint to a general population standpoint are the same, same rules. I mean, everybody's going to be, uh, you know, responding pretty similarly to the different macro distributions, the general population just isn't going to get as lean. So their hormones won't fluctuate as much in that deficit. The main problem I see with the general population is that they, especially you see this a lot in females 
is they'll chronically be underfed. So their, their baseline metabolic rate is it's downregulated. Their hormone function isn't optimized because they've been eating so little for so long, um, which makes body recomposition much more challenging because there's not really many calories to work with because they've pretty much bottomed out. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. And that is my struggle. So with my clients, I do the same approach as you, right? A lot of the clients I work with indirectly, they have thyroid imbalances, hormonal imbalances, they're on bioidentical hormones. And so the goal is to just get to a balance without a lot of that. And so then we, I try to do the higher fat 80%. And for the people that are willing to do that, and it may cause them to have some weight gain, especially if they've been under eating to have a normal weight. Um, but I see a lot of healing with that. Right. But then there's a lot of women that are like, oh no, I can't do that high of fat, um, because I'll gain weight. And then some of them will try it for a week or so. And they're like, yeah, I can tell I'm gaining weight. And so they just stop it. So what do you do in those circumstances where there are chronic dieters and maybe they have some weight to lose. And so they're like, see, like, I don't need that extra fat because a lot of people in the ketogenic space say, if you have fat on your body, you don't need to eat fat. So just get the protein and use the fat on your body. Um, but they don't feel well doing that, right? So how do you balance that and then support their metabolism so that they can start eating more calories and not just gain weight from it? So the hardest sell as a coach ever is when somebody comes to me and they're like, hey, I want to lose weight. And I have to tell them, hey, look, you've been under eating for the past several years of your life, we're going to have to increase your calories and you're probably going to gain weight, but we have to do that in order for you to lose weight and have this long game approach. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a long call for me, you know, that, that first initial call with the client to explain these things. But what I like to implement is, is basically a reverse diet. So a reverse diet is just as it says, a reverse of dieting. So rather than going into a deficit, we start to go up into a surplus and competitors do this post-show after they've, they've, drop their calories for several months. Uh, but if someone if just someone lay person has been under eating for several months or several years, they're going to benefit from this reverse diet as well. Uh, so I'll typically increase both protein and fat because they're probably not consuming adequate amounts of either. Uh, and I'll do so very gradually over the course of several months. Ideally, they'll also be weight training in tandem with that increase in calories. So that it's putting those calories to use uh, partitioning it towards lean mass as opposed to additional fat mass that's, that's gaining. Um, but really just sitting down and having that conversation with them about, Hey, look, we gotta, we gotta ramp up your baseline metabolic rate. We gotta ramp up your hormone function. Uh, we gotta give you some more calories to work with. Cause if, if they're only eating, you know, 1200, 1300 calories or less. And I mean, there's no, like if they still need to lose weight, there's no more calories left to pull from that. I mean, if you're, you're going into extreme poverty macros at that point. Uh, so, so bumping that up so that they're able to function and maintain at North of 2000 calories is going to give them much more caloric runway when the time comes to transition back into a deficit. Those are without a doubt the hardest, the hardest clients, because, you know, it happens in both males and females with okay. males. 
it's a little bit easier to say, Hey, look, you know, a lot of that weight is probably muscle, you know, like it, like for me, it's funny. Cause when I first got into lifting, anytime I saw the scale increase, I associated that with a positive thing because that meant I was building muscle. I was getting bigger. I was super skinny to begin with. So that was a positive thing. Um, for a lot of people, they see the scale increase and it's just automatically negative in their mind. So trying to transition that uh, mentality towards viewing it as a positive, if the composition's improving, like you're going to build some muscle. I mean, in order to optimize lean mass gain, you need to be in a surplus. So if you're training hard, providing a stimulus, a good percentage of that increased weight should in fact be muscle. Um, now, when you're in a surplus, you're going to likely put on a little bit of body fat as well. You're going to put on, you're going to hold a lot more fluid retention. Uh, so just, you know, taking the time to explain this to these people. Um, but it, it's a hard sell. I mean, if they, if they're just dead set on losing weight and they're only focused on the scale and not the composition, then, you know, really taking the time to, to explain to them why they have to do this because all other alternative methods have been exhausted. I mean, it's, you, you have to work with those clients pretty closely for sure. First of all, I think a lot of the coaching and I'm sure, you know, is that it's a lot of therapy work, right? It's like figuring out how the person you can help motivate them to move the needle, right? Because at, at a certain point after they know what to eat in the macros, then it's really about reinforcing it and making sure it sticks. And that's mm -hmm. really the hardest part, especially when, the weight scale or um, the needles not moving in the way they want. Right. And they're like, this isn't working. And then it's having that mind shift again of, no, this is, you're going through a healing process and stuff. And that becomes really hard. And so after a point, I just got to a point where I said, I'm not a weight loss coach. So if you want to lose weight and that's your primary focus, like don't work with me if their focus is only weight loss. And for, and I work with mostly women and for a lot of those women, they're not willing to eat. If they're eating 1200 to say they have to eat 2000, it's one of the hardest sales. But that's yeah. what they need, especially for their hormonal imbalances. Totally. And it's it's so important to like bring to their attention other proxies for progress outside of just the scale weight. Like more often than not, they'll be so frustrated. Like I've, I've had clients that will send me a message, like I'll, I'll increase their calories by 500 or a thousand over the course of several months. And they'll message me and they'll say, Hey, my sleep is better. My energy is great. I'm recovering from the gym. I'm getting stronger. All my lifts have gone up. I hit a PR yesterday and they're all excited. Then the next day they'll message me and they just got off the scale and they're like three pounds heavier. And they're just like so mad at the world. It's like, look, look at the paragraph you sent me just above this. I mean, you're feeling and performing much better. Like there's so much more to life than just with the scales reflecting back to you. So not, not fixating on the scale weight is super important. Yeah, no, I, I am fully on the same page. When keto first started, it was very, very therapeutic, high fat. And I know that we both agree more on healing with high fat, and that's a good um, lever to use. But with all this keto light coming in with the, you don't need fat to be on a ketogenic diet, as long as you lower your carbs, then you'll still be in a state of ketosis. How much do you value new science versus these are just trends and then I'll just kind of go away. Like, what are your thoughts on, okay, maybe this is new science that I need to adhere to and open up to, or this is just a trend that I know I have to just let it pass and then I'll just keep going. I'm trying to figure out what is, is causing a lot of this. And I think, I think there are so many businesses, so many scientists, so many researchers, so many, so many paid parties and organizations that are benefiting from the, the popularity of keto. And they, they know that there's still a massive demographic that wants to adhere to a ketogenic diet. So they're trying to mold the ketogenic diet to fit their narrative and science. Like I'm a huge advocate for science. Science is amazing. What we've been able to accomplish through science is just, it, it's mind, mind boggling. But at the same time, 
with science, I feel like a lot of people have lost the ability to self-experiment and then self-diagnose and have some sense of self-awareness to actually ask themselves, okay, how do I feel with these macro ratios? And instead, they'll look to their favorite influencer who can cherry pick any, any scientific study to support their argument. And you see this all day long within the keto low carb space. And it's, it's frustrating because I feel like it dilutes so many good things that are out there. And you see this a lot right now, like you're saying, specifically with the protein argument. And, you know, you can lose, you can absolutely lose weight with a high protein, low fat approach. You can absolutely lose weight with a high carb approach. You can lose weight with a high fat ketogenic approach. So it's, it's not, it doesn't make sense to me why you would want to bastardize what keto is to make it fit a different narrative. Let it be what it is. And I mean, the other day I had somebody send me macros that their coach, their keto coach prescribed them. And it was like 300 grams of protein, 50 grams of carbs and 15 grams of fat. And that's just not ketogenic. I don't care what universe you're from. That's not a ketogenic diet. And yes, your body can learn to use its stored fat as fuel. Absolutely. But you're going to, you're going to optimize ketone production and efficiency and using those ketones if you have a pretty significant degree of dietary fat coming in as well, um, it, it makes no sense why you'd want to, you know, shunt that completely because then it's just going to become an inefficient process. And protein is an amazing macronutrient, but it's not a great substrate for energy. It's a great building block and source for amino acids, but your energy is going to come from either carbs or fat. So if you're not eating carbs and you're not eating fat, and your body's not efficient at using your stored fat, then you're not going to have energy. You're not going to feel great and it's not going to be sustainable. So it's just a, a race to the bottom, which I don't want to play. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm fully on the same page with you. The whole keto movement with the high protein is obviously coming into the meat-based space. And the concern I have is that I think it's really hard to do, especially if you're not eating any bit of carbs. So you don't have fiber and other veggies that bloat you to bring in satiety. And so if you're just eating lean meats of shrimps and chicken and eating that most days, you're probably going to feel ravenous all the time and not feel well. And so I have some clients that are saying, look, I'm willing to do the hormonal healing, but I want to lose weight at this point too. So then instead of doing extended fasting, I said, okay, why don't you try a protein sparing modified fast or very high protein and very minimal fat for just like a day. And even the one day is really hard for them because they're so used to the higher fat. And so when they start eating really lean proteins, they just feel hungry all day. Their mood starts getting affected and automatically it's just showing. It's worrisome to me that there's a lot of advocates that are eat, saying, eat very lean protein, maybe even 55% fat, maybe 60% fat. But for women, especially in the healing phase of the hormonal imbalances, to eat that lean on a meat-based diet. And then instead of saying, maybe I need to change the levers, they'll say this diet doesn't work. And that is my concern yeah. when you can, you have a very healing diet in front of you. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very frustrating for me to see because they're like the protein sparing modified fast as a, as an example. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of that because the way it's been presented by so many influencers out there is that you do, you know, 600 or less calories on that day. It's all coming from very lean protein sources, but then they'll have you return to the normal intake, which is still an incredibly low amount. So you're just chronically underfed and then you're having a day which you're even more steeply underfed and it's not coming from dietary fat. Um, so I, I've had a 
several clients that have come from that. Um, I've had several clients that have competed with, with protocols like that. And they'll come to me and their, their testosterone will be totally shot if they're a male. I mean, not, and with, with that, you lose muscle. There's so many, there's so many downstream negative effects that come from totally tanking your hormones. And so much of that can be mitigated with just a well-formulated ketogenic diet uh, with ample dietary fat. So it, it's hard for me to see that unfold the way it has, because there's a great dietary protocol in front of these people and they're throwing it away because they've, the, the popular narrative has been, if you have any fat to lose, you don't need to consume any dietary fat. And that just couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I know a lot of people have been really on this like kick for egg whites to make, especially in the carnivore space. So I won't say the keto space because there's a lot of veggies and stuff that you can add into the, um, the keto diet, but for a carnivorous diet, they'll use, I think egg whites to make bread, but there's no nutrition in those, uh, the egg whites, right? It's like mostly just protein, maybe a little drop of magnesium and that's it. The nutrient density is in the egg yolks. And so all mm-hmm. you're doing is getting, um, protein. And so th- it's like, as a side, that's fine. But if you're eating that as your part of your main meal to ca- account for the protein, well, when we talk about protein grams, it's including all the nutrients from meats. Right. And so that's a concern for me, but, um, yeah, uh, it's just, it's just interesting how this all unfolds. So, you know, yeah. given, go ahead. No, I'm totally. And, and one of the big arguments is that protein is just so much more satiating than fat. Um, but it, it, it's not, I mean, protein is, is great. There's more volume, uh, in equal grams of, or equal calories between protein and fat. However, in the context of a deficit, you're probably going to be hungry regardless of the macronutrient distribution because you're in a deficit. But if you're not getting ample, I mean, you have to have a, a little bit of protein and a little bit of fat together, like 500 calories of pure protein is not going to be satiating. 500 calories of pure fat is not going to be satiating. You you need to have a blend there. And these people that are doing just incredibly high protein at the expense of, you know, zero fat, it's just, it's just not going to be satiating. I feel like, you know, if you were to look at it through like the lens of a 80, 20 analysis, for instance, you know, what, what's, what's going to be 20% of your effort and yield 80% of your return. If people just simply ate a, a one-to-one ratio of protein to fat, and it was all coming from single ingredient, whole food quality sources, that's going to fix almost every everybody's problems up to a point. Um, and then they can kind of tweak and finesse from there. Do, what do you think about protein powders? Do you think sometimes it's okay to swap that out instead of eating meats? I'm not a huge fan of protein powders. It's funny before I was ever keto, I would eat protein powders like, like a religion because that's just what we did as bodybuilders with a traditional bro diet. Um, but now that I'm keto, I get so much quality protein from the, the food that I consume that I don't really need the protein powders. I'll sometimes have a protein powder in a yogurt. Um, like I'll get a plain, um, you know, high fat yogurt. And if I want some flavor in there, I'll mix it like a chocolate protein powder or something of that nature. And there is protein powder in the keto bricks that we make. So I get some kind of indirectly through that. But as far as just like a general supplementation, I don't really ever see a need to just slam protein shakes. I wouldn't recommend just having a a protein isolate in isolation. Um, But if they had that with, you know, a good quality fat source, then, then that would definitely be be less than optimal, but certainly acceptable in, in times of dire, dire need. Thoughts on carbs for women. Um, do you think women as they're healing hormonal health, uh, for sleep that they need carbs? No. So uh, there's a, a lot of, um, a lot of research has been done where women will be irregular in their cycle. They'll introduce some carbs and then their cycle will stabilize. So that 
you know, points to there being a benefit in carbs for women. However, those studies are oftentimes done in the context of women that have been chronically underfed to begin with. I see no issues in cycle regularity with females in the absence of carbs if they're consuming adequate nutrition and calories overall. If they're doing that, then they shouldn't really see any benefit from the carbs. You, I've had many, many clients that have had amenorrhea for a long time. Then they ate fat like 75, 80%. Even going down to 70, eventually they have their period consistently. Even if they have other imbalances, whether it's um, mineral imbalance or mold or heavy metals, they'll still get their period consistently because they're eating a well-nourished diet. Um, but what about sleep? So there are some people that even on a well-formulated ketogenic diet, they still say that their sleep isn't as ideal. And then once they introduce a little bit of carbs at night, that they feel better. I'd be curious to ask what their intake is like prior to bed and just kind of what their sleep hygiene is like overall. I mean, if I was to eat a big bowl of carbs before bed, I would absolutely fall asleep probably faster. I'd be like zapped, you know, I'd want to crash. Um, but I don't think the sleep quality, the overall quality quality would be improved. I mean, just eating a meal right before bed, I'll notice that I'll fall asleep sooner, but I'll have less, you know, deep sleep throughout the night. Um, I do notice better sleep scores when I have a higher fat percentage meal as my last meal, as opposed to higher protein. Um, but I feel like if everything else from an environmental standpoint, like if, you know, they, they turn down the thermostat, they're, they're not stressed. They're not stimulating their body with looking at screens and things of that nature. Um, and they, they are consuming adequate nutrition and adequate calories. I, I can't imagine they would have trouble falling asleep uh, in that context. Okay. So for most of your clients, they basically don't need the carbs to go. To Correct. Sleep. Yeah. I've, I've never had a single client that said, okay, I can't do anything unless I eat carbs and we not be able to fix it without the carbs. I mean, we were able to kind of fine tune and finesse things to, to work around the carbs. I think, I mean, carbs are just simply not an essential macronutrient. I mean, they're just, they're just not, people would like to think that they are, but they're not. So many people are pushing for carbohydrates for energy and that things like if your insulin is too low, which a ketogenic diet can possibly do. And then that is not ideal either. And that, and then they say it with the thyroid as well. And I just find it so interesting because how do they know it's the carbs? Like that's like the ultimate thing, right? It could be that maybe your thyroid is imbalanced because you're eating way too much nutrition on a carnivore diet or something else that's affecting your liver to then even produce the T4, or maybe you're overstressed, right? It's just all these things, but it's just interesting that people always like, it's the carbs. The answer is the carbs. And it's like, it could be so many different things. Yeah. I mean, pointing to the carbs is just an easy out. Like people, People can can say, hey, look, I, I do better with carbs, but how much of that is just simply placebo as well? Like if they want carbs, they're going to find a way to get their carbs and then make carbs seem like a positive in their life because they want to justify going for the carbs. Um, and I'm probably equally as guilty on the opposite by not having the carbs and finding a placebo with the fat. But at the end of the day, I just don't see any well-formulated studies that say you have to have carbs to function at a high rate. Yeah, no, and I'm I'm on the same page. If I need to be... On my A game, I am eating the most ketogenic diets of diets, um, and and I feel it. And just that's just my N equals one. But I see it in my clients as well. It's just sometimes it's that lever of getting them to be able to eat that much fat because they struggle with that. In terms of weight loss, do you think that a ketogenic diet is more ideal or a carnivorous diet? Um, do you? Is it? I know it's bio individual, but do you have an opinion on that? 
So I'm a huge fan of both uh, ketogenic and carnivorous. I, I mean, I, I view carnivore as a subset of keto, basically. And the, the reason I like the keto over the carnivore is because one, I don't need to, to go to that level of elimination because I don't have any of the gut issues or anything like that, that people benefit from when going carnivore. Um, also, I like to have a little bit more flexibility in where my, my calorie sources come from. So, you know, you can certainly hit any macronutrient target goal with a carnivore approach, but you have to get a little bit more creative than you would if you were able to utilize all that's available to you with a ketogenic approach. Um, so I'll typically go that route. That said, I don't eat very many vegetables at all. So I'm kind of like, a, uh, I mean, I, I could explain my dad as meat and bricks pretty much. Like I eat the keto bricks and I eat a lot of meat. Um, so that's pretty well carnivorous for the most part, but it's not strict carnivore. So just all a matter of how, how detailed you want to get. Um, and I'll, I'll occasionally have some salad or some veggies or some Brussels sprouts or something of that nature. But I mean, I think from a, a body composition standpoint, you can, you can totally excel with either. It's just a matter of what's going to be more sustainable for you based off the types of foods you like. That makes sense. And I, and I fully agree with that. Not everyone has to do a carnivore diet forever, right? So if you are healing and then you feel healed and you want to bring in other foods to see if you're metabolically flexible, if even from a disordered eating, if you are really healing from that as well, like I definitely test myself on that is to whether try a sweetener or like a fruit or something to see, okay, am I really healing from disordered eating or am I just band-aiding it by just eating meat and nothing else, right? So I definitely think, and, and I fully agree with you on that. Just curious about your bricks. So why eat the bricks? Um, is it a good on the go food? Like what is it that's good about it? Yeah. So it just makes getting the fat macros in easy. I mean, each brick is about 90 grams of fat um, and I'll have one whole brick a day. And the, the base of that fat is coming from cacao butter, which is the highest source of steric acid on the planet more so than beef suet, which is often hailed as the, the great source for, for steric acid, but cacao butter actually has more. Um, my body responds very well to it. I don't have any GI distress like I would if I was to consume 90 grams worth of MCT oil, for instance. Um, so yeah, it's just an easy option that uh, makes getting the fat macros inconvenient and it's a quality source. So I don't have to worry about any types of, uh, you know, adverse effects from a digestion standpoint. How much, how many grams of protein is in that same brick? Uh, depending on the flavor, but usually about 30, I would never recommend people not consume meats uh, with the brick. I mean, it's not, it's not designed to be like just eat the bricks and nothing else. Like I always pair it with a, a good quality protein source. That's interesting. So if you're eating like a T-bone and let's say there's not enough fat, you can eat your brick with it and it exactly. actually counts as the fat. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. Would you recommend that some people, if they chose to eat the bricks every day, that they can eat it every day? Yeah. I mean, I've had one every single day for the past three years and I'm still allowed to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah. I think that's a great option. I mean, if people need fat, cause I do get that question a lot is, I can't do dairy. So where, what fat can I, and then, so we're like, okay, well, let's try to get some other types of animal fat. So that may be a good option too. So that makes a lot of sense. And I don't ever want to come across as trying to sell the bricks or anything. Like I made it for my own personal use. And then it just kind of became a product by accident for, because of the demand. But I mean, there's, you could totally excel with a ketogenic or a carnivore approach without the bricks. There's so many options out there. People just feel very limited when they remove all the carbohydrates from their life. Um, so for those people that just want something simple, let's grab and go. It's just a good option for them. 
Yeah. And um, I know there's a lot of people that are fans of your brick. So in terms of hormones, um, is a protein sparing modified fast or not even that label, but just a days of higher protein with very little fat. Do you think it's okay for people that are struggling with hormonal imbalances? I feel like in, a, in an acute scenario where like, if you've got a well-formulated ketogenic diet throughout the vast majority of the week, you're getting enough calories in. And then one day, you eat a ton of shrimp instead of ribeye. That's totally fine. I feel like that would be, uh, I mean, it just kind of depends on where someone's hormones are and how their strategy is to fix those. But on an acute level like that, there should be no concern with having a day that's higher protein. Okay. Weight loss long-term. I know that a lot of people struggle with like the last 10 pounds are the hardest to lose. Do you think the 80, 20, um, the 75, 25, the fat to protein is an ideal way to lose that, assuming that your body is now can tolerate more calories and burn some of that. Would you incorporate maybe cardio? And then in the long term, how do you maintain your weight without gaining? So I'm going to give you a crash course here in, in my <laughs> protocol, basically. So say somebody is is coming from a healthy metabolic standpoint, healthy hormone, hormonal standpoint, and they're consuming adequate calories uh, at baseline. Um you know, to, to have calories to work with. So north of 2000, ideally for sure. Like we'll just use me as an example. My, my maintenance is probably around 3000 calories. Um, right now I'm probably at about 12% body fat, which I can maintain this pretty effortlessly at 3000 calories with a one-to-one ratio when I'm transitioning into a competition prep. And this, this, this same concept is going to hold true for most people. So I'm not like a special unicorn situation here. Um, when I start a competition prep, I'll get down to, uh, you know, 5% body fat or less at the very end. I'll start with a, you know, higher fat ratio at about 80% of my calories coming from fat. And then over the course of four to six months, I'll gradually increase protein and decrease fat until I find my protein threshold, as I like to call it. So basically the point at which my body stops responding to that higher protein favorably. And then at that point, I'll start dropping protein macros as well. So say I start the 80% fat ratio and then I hit that protein threshold three months later and I'm at a one-to-one ratio or about 65% of my calories coming from fat, I'll start dropping just protein and some fat at that point. And then by the end of that, that'll be another three months down the road and I'll probably be sub 5% body fat at that point. And I would be consuming probably north of 75% of my calories coming from fat. Now at that very tail end, I'll have... Uh, strategically placed ketogenic caloric refeeds. So my calories, my overall calories, that last little bit will be, you know, quite a bit under 2000, probably 1700, 1800. So I'll have one day a week in which my calories are a little bit higher, both from protein and dietary fat, just to kind of get my metabolic uh, state a boost, get my hormones a boost and just get my psychology a boost from being in a deficit for so long. Um, And then that's when I'll peak for the competition. And then I'll be at my lowest body fat percent at that point. Now that point is where a lot of people want to get, but that's not sustainable long-term. I would not encourage anybody to sustain that low body fat indefinitely. You can't really build muscle when you're that lean and that that low of a calorie intake and your hormones are not going to be optimized. Your metabolism is certainly going to start down-regulating and that won't be optimal either. So I'll transition to a reverse diet in which I start gradually increasing both protein and fat. With that, I'll be able to build more lean muscle mass and I'll put on some body fat, but the end goal should be to stop the reverse diet at a point in which my, my maintenance calories are higher than when they started. My body fat is lower than when it started. 
And I just feel and perform better than when I started. And my ending composition, again, should be better than it was when it started. And basically, I'm cycling through these building and cutting phases over the course of you know several months, several years. And each time I'm improving my starting and stopping position so that I get better every single year. How does exercise fit into that? Yeah, so my training, I probably should touch on that. My training is going to be, um, I honestly don't change my training that much between a building and a cutting phase. I'm continually trying to implement some form of progressive overload, go heavier, uh, train more intensely, add more volume, add more weight so that my body is subjected to that overloading technique to build more lean muscle mass um, and in response to that stimulus. And then I'll increase cardio gradually as I'm in a deficit leaning out for competition, but I don't make cardio my main source of activity in a, in a deficit. I mean, you still want to make weight training your, your main source of activity because that's going to be very muscle sparing as well. When you're in a calorie deficit and you're a lot of people make the mistake of, of as calories get lower, they start doing very little resistance training and doing more cardio. And what happens is your body recognizes that those muscles are no longer needed because the resistance training has decreased. Mm -hmm. So it'll start becoming catabolic towards that muscle and you'll start losing muscle. So a great way to combat that is to simply continue to train with the same uh, volume and intensity that you were in a surplus. It's going to be harder to do so because you're not taking in as many calories, but the, the closer you can maintain that baseline, the better. Throughout that whole process, let's say I'm trying to get to 2000 calories, but I'm not okay with some of that weight gain. So then I just start doing a lot of cardio. Will that impede the metabolic rate to get used to eating higher calories? It will make things much more difficult because it's not all calories in calories out by any means. But if you're, if you're trying to increase calories, but then you're also trying to you know, double down on cardio and you're, you're increasing the amount that you're expending, then you're not really increasing your net, you know, outcome as far as what your baseline calorie consumption is, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. Okay. So I'm hearing from you that patience is key and just kind of continuing on. How much do you see stress impacting this whole thing? Uh, stress is, is super important. And I, when I was younger, I used to not really give it the attention it deserved. Like I would just assume that I was in, you know, just invincible and I would go through things. I would not sleep enough. I would just go, you know, full steam ahead, but I can definitely tell when I don't get a good night's sleep, I can definitely tell it's reflected in my training. It's reflected in my recovery. Um, so, so creating an environment in which you're able to remove as much stress as possible um, I mean, some stress is good, like you stress is good, but if it's like a negative stress that that's leading to unnecessary anxiety, that's keeping you up at night, that's not healthy. That's, that should be mitigated first and foremost. Okay. Do you think, um, handling any past traumas or mental stresses are important to healing? Yeah, totally. I mean, for me, my disordered eating was the catalyst for me following a ketogenic diet and becoming so passionate about keto. But before I had solved that issue, I had, I had struggled with that for three or four years uh, of my life after my first competition. And that wrecked my world for, for years. I mean, I had a terrible relationship with food. I had no context of what satiety was, what, what you know, hunger was, because I was just so skewed uh, with my relationship with food. And I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy, but so many people deal with that on a daily basis. Um, for me, a ketogenic diet really helped uh, get past that because I knew that I was fueling my body with proper sources. I think from a hormonal standpoint, 
uh, everything improved with a ketogenic diet. I wasn't getting the crazy blood glucose and insulin spikes that I was with carbohydrates, which also kind of skewed things. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was a massive stressor in my life that had a cascade of negative effects that, that, you know, became apparent in other areas of my life. So dealing with that, uh, led to me having a foundation to build from. I want to touch upon disordered eating because that's also from my history. Um, in terms of carnivore or keto, a lot of people will say this is orthorexia, right? Like you get really into nutrition and then you're like, oh, I can't eat that because it has seized oils. I can't eat that because it has way too many carbs or I can't eat that because it's not pasture raised, whatever it may be. And then there's the other end of where there's some people that are fasting um, for maybe two days or one day or whatever the amount is. And then they're refeeding, but then the refeed is almost like a full binge. Mm-hmm. Um, thoughts on that. Yeah. So, it, I mean, people have to be self-aware. They have to know where they're coming from. I mean, there are certainly people that do obsess over every single little detail, every single little macronutrient um, for no apparent reason. Like when I'm in a competition prep, I track every single macro. I never deviate and that's just where I'm at. That's the chapter of the life that I'm in when I'm in a prep, but I'm not like that year round. It wouldn't be sustainable for me to be that strict year round. Um, I'm very strict with my ketogenic foods. I don't ever deviate and eat a bunch of carbs, but I, I like the food that I eat. I feel like it's contributing to my overall health and well being. I'm excited for myself being healthier. I'm excited for my wife being healthier. I'm excited for the the epigenetic effects that my lifestyle decisions are going to have on my future kids. And that is reason enough for me to adhere to the diet. So I don't think it's ever any, you know, sense of orthorexia for me. Um, but I'm a self-aware enough to know that, you know, there's other people out there that, that are coming at that from a incredibly disciplined standpoint, but it's coming from an unhealthy baseline. So I feel like if that's the case for them, they need to be aware of it and then correct course. Um, but just simply avoiding the carbohydrates and foregoing all of the, the, the festivities that lives ha- life has to offer centered around food. I don't think that's should be viewed as a bad thing at all. When you're doing that training and go- eating like excess, and then all of a sudden cutting, there should be a period and correct me if I'm wrong, where you may feel still a little bit hungry because now you're all of a sudden cutting down calories. Maybe it's because it's slowly titrating down. You don't feel it, but I wonder okay. if any disordered eating happens in that process of, you know, increasing and then scaling back and then going back up again and finding maintenance? Not so much for me anymore. Um, a lot of competitors will struggle with that in the beginning, especially the first time they do a show. Like the competitors that you know do a show for the first time, yeah. they have zero perspective. So they come out of that show and they look amazing. And then they start, they, they view that show day as the finish line. And then after that finish line's been crossed, they you know, they go to town, they eat all kinds of food. They'll oftentimes just gain a ton of weight really quickly because there's no plan or strategy coming out of that show. That's why having a a structured reverse diet is so very important. Um, But for me, I've done enough shows that I've gained perspective as to what to expect, how my body's going to respond and and how I can plan accordingly. And I have like a legitimate goal in the building phase, in the cutting phase. And I can, I can approach that goal with, with the strategy around my nutrition and not be this, you know, misshapen relationship with food that results from it. Um, it is challenging though. Like when you come out of a, a deficit and the show is over and you have food in abundance all around you to have the discipline to, to not just, you know, grab everything in sight because there is no show looming anymore is a very hard thing. And it, it's an exercise in mental discipline and fortitude, but that's why I love competing because it is such an exercise in the, in the mind. I mean, I view it as a mental sport more so than a physical. 
I agree that that makes a lot of sense. You're right. It really depends on the person's own journey, right? So I know for me, when I was trying to do 36 hour fast to lose a little bit of weight, I noticed that all my refeeds, I started getting that wait, this kind of feels like that binge mentality, the desire to eat more. And so I stopped doing it because as much as I think it's a tool that people can use, I know for me, it's not a lever that I want to pull, especially from my history. So I think it's so important to know your history and, and go from there. So I I agree with you there. You know, we touched upon the keto bricks a little bit. I know you mentioned that you did it for yourself, but I think it is a really convenient way that you're saying to do fat. I thought it was a protein um, brick for some reason, but I guess it's more fat related, but what inspired you? Yeah. So during my 2017 competition prep, which was the first prep that I had done with a ketogenic diet. Um, I just, there, like I said, there, there was no products out at the time. There was no, I mean, keto was not that popular back then. Um, so there was no options for good quality, you know, meal replacement bars that took the guesswork out of tracking macros. So I set out to create my own kind of as a way to scratch my own itch and formulated several different options in the, in the kitchen. Most of them were total disasters. And then we, we, came up with the brick and it worked and I was documenting my prep on YouTube. Uh, and I was like doing full day of eating, you know, vlogs to show people how I was eating for this competition. And that I featured the brick on an episode and everybody was like, what is this? I got to get it. What's the recipe? How do I buy these? And I just kind of wrote it off. Cause I, like I said, I wasn't ever planning on making it into a product and they just kept asking about it. So Crystal at the time, my girlfriend, wife now, she started diving into health department laws and what would be required to start making these things, manufacturing these things. I started diving into, you know, what it would take from a business standpoint, from a financial and accounting standpoint to create a physical product business. And we rolled up our sleeves and did just that. And we have since grown the business quite large. We have eight full-time employees now. And um, we just moved into a new facility where we manufacture all these things in-house and we ship them all over the world. That is so exciting. Um, Congratulations. I mean, I tried the product a long time ago. It was pretty good. Um, I back then was very like anti-sweetener. So I was like, I can't eat this just in case. Um, But I feel like my uh, relationship with food has healed a lot. And so I couldn't even try little bits of sugar and it's okay. But so I I bet you if I try it now, now. (laughs) yeah, yeah, that would be, I would very much appreciate that. Thank you. In terms of just everything, you know, as we're wrapping up, do you have just like nutrition tips for the people watching that are either frustrated with the carnivore diet, the keto diet, so-and-so is losing weight so much. I tried everybody and every influencer's way of eating and it's not working for me. And maybe this diet just isn't for me. Any just general tips for these listeners and viewers? I have a really hard time. I mean, there definitely are some situations where keto would not work for, for some people. Um, maybe it's just because they simply will not, will not forego some of the foods out there. Um, like I know, I know some people that are Italian, they will not give up pasta, even if it cuts 50 years off their life. And for those people, it's probably not going to work for them. Um, but for, for the most part, from a biological standpoint, there's not really too many instances where I would think a a well-formulated ketogenic diet would not work for the vast majority of people out there. Um, the problem I see is people's lack of staying power and discipline towards anything in life, much less a diet, um, which is unfortunate because all great things come through, you know, hard work and discipline. Um, and that's, that's, that holds true across the board for everything in life. So I would just encourage people to give it the time it deserves and, and not worry so much about what everybody else is doing, whatever, what other influencers are doing, what other, what other scientists are doing, what other medical professionals are doing, just simply have a plan, adhere to it, 
self-experiment, tweak things internally, but stop looking externally until you figure out what's going on, you know, your own self. Um, and then you can kind of adjust and tweak and finesse to, to really get things optimized, but simply just staying with it long-term. I mean, I've been doing this for six or seven years now without fail and I've never felt better. The problem is so many people don't make it six weeks before they give up on it. So it, it's one of those things that continues to get better and better and better over time if you are disciplined with it. I agree. I, I fully agree with that. I mean, just being ketogenic for four years um, has healed me in so many ways. And I think a lot, and as I work with clients, the biggest thing is really the ability to stick to it. And so when you're chasing every shiny thing that comes and on the internet, trust me, there's many shiny things that come and they're all saying different things. So at a certain point, it's like, wait a minute, is ketogenic good? Because people are saying you need carbs for thyroid or wait, do you need to add honey or do you need to add supplements or do you need to do this or do I need to? And there's so many different recommendations and it's, it gets really confusing. And I think the more popular diet becomes, it becomes even more muddied, right? I'm sure you saw that in the keto space and it gets really frustrating, especially when I like half of the time, I feel like with my clients, it's like telling them not to listen to the internet. Like that's like half of our call. And then we can move on to like, what are you doing specifically? But it's really interesting. Mental health, sticking to something and just finding your own story in healing is so important. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, so many people, I mean, the internet and social media is great. Like I would not have the platform that I, yes. that I do now if it wasn't for that. So I'll never bad mouth social media in that regard, but at the same time, I mean, there's definitely a double-edged sword. I mean, just look at, look at politics, for instance, I certainly don't want to get into a conversation about politics, but there's so much division that comes from everybody having an opinion and everybody trying to keep up with the Joneses with regard to who's right and who's wrong. And the exact same war is raging with regard to nutrition and what's right and what's wrong with nutrition. There's more than one way to skin a cat. As the saying goes, you can have success with, you know, lots of different types of diets, but you have to stick with it. You have to stick with anything for long enough to know if you truly are going to excel with it. So yeah, I would just encourage people to, to have some, have some staying power. So I know we talked about macro as the big lever. Are there other levers you pull too? So I know you don't really use carb as a lever, so we can forget about the macros um, in that, in the carb aspect, but do you also maybe use levers of fasting or supplements, um, maybe sleep, maybe the exercise, but do you use all those levers? Yeah. So I, I don't do a lot of extended fasting. I do uh, a lot of intermittent fasting just by default uh, throughout the day. Um, I, I do and sleep obviously, obviously is very important. So I try to optimize my sleep, but resistance training is, is resistance training is amazing. And of course, people that are not training are going to hear me say this on your podcasting, like, Oh, he's just a bodybuilder. Of course he's going to say that, but resistance training is, is so amazing. You, you know, nurse Cindy, you're familiar with nurse Cindy. She's an angel. All right. She has not resistance trained her whole life until just recently, like, like past month or so. I saw her at the keto summit Omaha and Crystal and I both looked at each other after we talked with Cindy and we're like, she looks noticeably younger this time seeing her. She looks better than we've ever seen her before. And it's because the only thing she's changed has been the resistance training like that from a longevity standpoint. I mean, the ketogenic diet paired with resistance training is truly the fountain of youth. So if, if you can fit that into your lifestyle, you're going to see a ton of benefit from a muscle preservation standpoint, from a bone density standpoint, from a hormonal standpoint, from a sleep standpoint, like it's a cascade of positive effects that come from resistance training. So I would encourage anybody to do that. When you say resistance training is just using your own body weight sufficient. So like doing squats, yeah. 
Yeah, that that is certainly better than not doing anything. I mean, a lot of people are going to like I, I've I've worked with people that that train exclusively with resistance bands and their body weight, and they're able to excel at a very high level with just that. Um, I like to incorporate more because I like to push my body beyond what I would be able to do with just body weight. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, from just an overall health and well being standpoint, if you just use resistance bands and, and body weight exercises. There's a ton of stuff you can do. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, anything that gets fully functioning stimulus, stimulus of all the muscles in the full range of motion and is able to increase that working load is going to have a positive effect. Yeah. And, um, I just interviewed with Dr. Brett Scher not too long ago. And he also said I had him prioritize exercise for heart health. And he said that if he had to pick one resistance training was the first one, mm-hmm. and then he would totally. do cardio for like elasticity of the heart. So um, I, I don't think it's just a bodybuilding thing. I think it's like what you're saying is truth. So, so where can people find you? Um, where can, if people were to buy the keto bricks, where can they find that? And then do you do one-on-one coaching still? And then if you do that, where can people find that? Yeah. So the coaching, everything, everything me is, is on ketosavage.com. Uh, that links to the YouTube channel. It links to the Instagram. So ketosavage.com for all of my stuff. Uh, ketobrick.com is where people can go to get the bricks. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Every time I've heard your content from long, long ago, you've always been very level-headed and reasonable. And and that's why I wanted to have you on because I think you're a great resource for the keto carnivore community. So thank you. Well, thank you. It really is a pleasure. Every time I've heard you speak or any of the content you've put out, I've been in complete agreement as well. So you are definitely a light in this this darkness of the nutritional world. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Um, I will talk to you soon. Take care. Take care. Okay, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Robert is a wealth of information. He still does one-on-one coaching. Robert is all about bio-individuality, and I know you will be in good hands if you work with him. All right, guys, you know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Take care. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.